Morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. I'm Pastor Trey. I have the privilege of sharing God's Word with you uh, today and next Sunday. We better get right to it. We have a problem. It's probably going to require collective repentance. In my study this week, I've come across a command in the Bible that I don't believe that any of us have obeyed. I don't think any of us have even tried to obey it. Guys, could you toss that up on the screen for us? The Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, When you come, bring the cloak that I left at Carpus with Troas, or with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all else, the parchments. Look, I don't know Carpus. I've never met him. I have never been to Troas. I'd rather go to Florida. I'm not sure where the books and the parchments are that Paul needs. And I don't know what the titles are. And maybe most of all, the Apostle Paul may still be very cold right now without his cloak. Yes? Maybe Timothy got that done for him. Enough silliness. My point is made. Um, Sometimes Bible study is hard because the Bible was written several thousand years ago, to different people in different settings, at different times, with different kinds of problems in various ways, and we read it today, and we try to pattern our lives after its teaching. And we have um, examples like that that uh, tell us that it can be a little tricky For introduction this morning, I'd like to spend five minutes refreshing on Bible study. And this is not random. This will actually serve to amplify the text this morning, the significance of the text, the beauty of the text. But we have a passage. We read the Bible. And we, as Christians, say we pattern our lives after the Bible. So we try to do what the Bible says, right? We read the Bible. We do what it says. Well, sometimes that's true. My favorite illustration of this is Philippians 2.13. I don't need a Greek lexicon. I don't need any help. I don't need any commentaries. I just need the Spirit of God to help me obey this verse. Do everything without arguing and complaining. I don't need to learn more understanding. I don't need to learn more Bible. I need help doing it. There are times it's just that simple. But there are times it's not. Sometimes if we go straight from the text right to our lives, we're discouraged, miss the point, we oversimplify, we, and we end up misrepresenting God, and that is bad. For example, the book of Deuteronomy, we're told that a woman should not wear the clothing of a man. So we have brothers and sisters who teach very uh, intentionally and specifically that women should only wear dresses. Now, that's not my intent to go into that rabbit hole this morning, but I will tell you that it doesn't go over so well in Ireland where men wear skirts called kilts. So this is tricky, right? Culturally. And so our first step in Bible study is to hear the words of the passage in the ears of the original listeners. Their setting, 
their language. We call this exegesis. It means to get the original intended meaning for the original intended audience. It helps us understand what the Holy Spirit was trying to say. Listen to the words of uh, Paul written to Timothy also in 2 Timothy. He said, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. One thing we have to understand about Bible study, there are not many meanings. The Holy Spirit, the original author, intended the right meaning for the right people through his inspiration. If we end up disagreeing on the meaning of a passage, we cannot oversimplify it in a postmodern way and say, well, that's just your interpretation. This is my interpretation. And believe that that makes both of us okay. Now that may be your interpretation and this may be my interpretation, but what must be true? One of us is wrong (laughs) and we can disagree with grace and work at our best to 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 find the the differences but if there was a meaning then there was a meaning right and that's what we have to find out that's step one and we have to recognize that that's the point Uh, now if we go right from there we find the original meaning and we come right to ourselves we sometimes make a second critical error especially if we're reading old testament or jewish writings We must always ask ourselves, especially in those settings, where does this passage, where does this portion of the Bible fall in relationship to the cross of Jesus Christ? Are we before the cross or after the cross? How does the truth of the death of Jesus on the cross affect how I read and interpret this passage? For example, we should not read the Moses account and turn it in to primarily a series of lessons on management and leadership principles that can help us be effective leaders in our lives today. I should never stand in front of you and declare a message, even let it be helpful and moralistic, without mentioning Jesus in a way that that same message could be received in a synagogue or a mosque or a self-help class and that they would find it to be enjoyable. If we teach the Bible without theological reflection on the redeeming work of the cross of Jesus, we find ourselves moralistically teaching the Bible like Aesop's fables or legalistically teaching the Bible like a series of policemen. Not good and not right. So once we understand the original meaning and we complete our theological reflection on the cross, now we're able to understand and apply the Word of God to our lives more accurately. By way of last illustration, this is why so many Christians feel at home in the letters of the New Testament. New Christians gravitate to the letters of the New Testament, uh, Romans and Corinthians and Thessalonians and Philippians and Colossians, because they are the most similar to us. They're closest in culture to us. They're on the same side of the cross as us. It's much easier and safer to interpret and apply the letters of the New Testament. That's why many of you have such a ease and comfort with them. Much of this you do instinctively, friends. I'm not, I, 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 this was all just by way of introduction to contrast our message this morning. Why would I share all of this today? Well, here's the good news. Today's passage doesn't really require much of that process at all. Almost none of it. It's much simpler. It's beautiful. It's personal. It's relational. 
Because today, Jesus says he's talking about you personally. How refreshing in contrast to what I just said to you, right? I opened this book, and if you were to go to my office at different times during the week, you'd find books just laid all over my floor. Language books, commentators, structural outlines. Just wanting to do a good job preparing to declare God's word publicly. But this is just an absolute contrast to that. This morning, our passage, we read a few extra verses just for continuity's sake, but we have verses 20 through 23. Follow along as I read it. Jesus says, I do not ask, that means pray, I do not pray for these only. Who are the these only? Well, those are the 11. Jesus has prayed for himself and his own glory in verses 1 through 5. And now from 6 to 19, Jesus prayed pretty much specifically for those 11 guys who were right there with him. There are some crossover for applications for us to that prayer, but he was praying specifically for those 11. We know that partly because of this verse. He says, I don't just pray for them, meaning I was praying for them, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. You know who that is? That's the church. You believe because of the words of the disciples, don't you? Jesus prays for you. What does he pray for you? I do not pray only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That's an interesting question. We're gonna, there's an interpretive question. We're going to find out what glory. He says, the glory you gave to me, I gave to them. What is he talking about? That they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Well, let's just real quickly, before I get into the meat of my uh, sermon here, let's just look at the text and familiarize ourselves with it so that as we go through it, it's easier for us. This morning, my outline is pretty straightforward. There's one central theme. There's two desperate needs. And there's three helpful instructions. It's as easy as one, two, three. (laughs) One central theme, two desperate needs, and three helpful instructions. And you'll get that again throughout the text, or throughout the morning. But as you look at this, um, there's a pretty obvious central theme. What did Jesus pray? For unity, right? You don't have to, I'm going to come back to all of this. You're going to find that my my talk this morning uh, just is going to feel very cohesive. It's all about the same thing. There's one central theme, that they would all be one. There's two desperate needs. You find them uh, at the end of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you've sent me. 
And then at the end of verse 23, you see the other one, so that the world may know that you've sent me and love me even as you love them even as you loved me so there's two why there's two so that's everyone see that this we should be one for this reason and then for this reason and there's your two desperate needs and then throughout the course of the the uh the prayer jesus says some things that are helpful and i've drawn those so we're not going through the text exactly sequentially everyone understand that we're going to talk about one central theme two desperate needs and three helpful instructions to this point jesus has been praying for his 11 disciples but as i said in verse 20 he begins to pray for those who will believe in him because of the testimony of these disciples jesus sends his disciples into the world the 11 as the father sent him and jesus knows that his word has created an out-of-this-worldness in the disciples. And what he hopes is that the word in the disciples going into the world will create an out-of-this-worldness in the world, in others. What does Jesus pray? As I said, one central theme, that they may all be one. You see it in verse 20? I Pray that those who believe in me, verse 21, would all be one. Jesus' prayer is that we would be united. Friends, it's Holy Week. This is Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter. If we superimpose the chronology, we're Thursday night, Friday morning, right here when he's praying, he's right before the cross. What's on his mind? Famous last words, focal thoughts, desperate prayers. What comes out of the heart of Jesus? That we would be united? It might seem like an unusual request on the surface. I think you'll find it makes a lot of sense as we go through the text. This unity is defined unbelievably so, as being the same as the unity that the Father and the Son share. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as, you see the comparison? Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Do you see it? It is not just a unity for us to have with each other. Oh, i got to get on the same page. I, I have to figure this out. No. It is primarily a unity with the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son's unity is a unity of purpose. It's a unity of intention. This unity is guaranteed because of the Son's sacrificial death, His obedient self-giving. Beyond that, this unity is defined for us a little bit as coming from the glory that the Father gave the Son in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Well, what is this glory? Well, we've talked about glory. Pastor Brian spent three messages on it in verses 1 through 5. There was a great deal of attention in the early part of Jesus' prayer to the glory that the Father had given him, and he would glorify himself and then bring the glory back to the Father. The glory that the Father gave the Son is the glory of the gospel message. 
It brings about the reversal of the fall. The undoing of the great curse that we all live under now. The basis for Jesus' people's unity is the Gospel that brings eternal life. It is not some kind of sentimental unity that comes out of abandoning the truth. Can't we all just get along? That is such a weak substitute for what Jesus proclaims here. There's no abandoning of truth. Jesus prays for those who will believe in Him through His followers. It is the desire of Jesus that God should receive glory as Jesus completes His mission and purpose. Jesus came to call out a people who know and believe in the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. What does Jesus pray for those who will believe through the word of the disciples? The same thing he prayed for the eleven earlier. Unity, oneness, agreement. We're going to come back to this, but what strikes me the most through this teaching is that the unity Jesus prayed for is modeled on the unity that he enjoys with the Father. And my mind is blown. Just as Jesus and the Father are in one another, what does this mean? Well, it certainly brings the ideas of shared identity, right? Jesus, Father, Spirit, shared identity, shared nature, shared goals, shared purposes. Jesus prays for those who will believe to be united by faith to one another and to the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And so this main theme, this central theme, that God would unite all who believe in the Apostles' message. There are four little thoughts here that come out and bubble up that keep reinforcing this theme. One is we should be united with Jesus and the Father, not just with each other. I already said this in verse 21, but I think it's going to come out again throughout the sermon, and you, you need to focus on this. He said that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. There are times that I think I'm progressing in my sanctification. I'm growing in faith. And then I look at the examples that the Scripture gives to us, and, I, and I'm humbled. Will my righteousness in my own Christian life really ever approach the righteousness that God calls for me to have in the book of Romans? Will my love for the body that God calls for me to have in the book of Ephesians ever really approach God's love? Will our unity actually ever approach the unity? I'm daunted by this instruction that we should be one as the Father and the Son are one? Do you feel the weight of that? I do. I don't mean to crush you with it. I mean to just simply bring it to the purpose of to the front that we might see it as the sermon continues. The truth of the apostles' message is what will unite us. He says, I don't ask for these only, but those who will believe in me through the word. So the the, the point of unity is for those who believe. The language. 
The closeness and the unity that Jesus and the Father has should be ours. Do you, do you hear this familial language? Just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that they may be in us. Verse 21. Verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. This is the theme. Everyone see the one central theme? It is hard to miss, isn't it? <laughs> it is pretty straightforward. You may feel I'm belaboring it. One more thought. The purpose, this unity is to unite us, and this will come out in the transition here and into our next point, is that the world may understand and accept the gospel. How important is this unity? It is central to the theme, mission, and purpose of Jesus himself. If the theme, mission, and purpose of Jesus himself is to call out a people who believe in him, and he says that the unity of the believers is the thing that will help people understand and accept the gospel so that the world may believe you've sent me, so that the world may know you've sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This one central theme dominates Jesus' prayer. One central theme Two urgent needs. Hopefully you see the big picture here. Now we shift and talk just for a moment about the why. Why does Jesus pray this? The reason drips with the heart of evangelism. The purpose of this unity is evangelistic. Jesus' desire is that the world should see his people's unity in truth as it's worked out in the differing relationships within the church. And that the people in the world would, because of seeing this, come to believe that message for themselves. Two desperate needs. Jesus states the unbelievably important purpose of the unity of those who believe. I've said it already, verse 21 and 23. Firstly, that... Christians would be so unified that the world would believe in Jesus' mission. That they would know why he was sent. Jesus wants us to be one so that the world will believe in him. Jesus expects the out-of-this-world unity of his followers to have, an un, to have an evangelistic impact on the unbelieving world that would watch. This means that Jesus expects the unity of the church to be convincing, compelling, attractive. When Jesus speaks of the glory that the Father has given him, again, he has in view the way that the Father has given him his own nature and identity. And Jesus has revealed this as he has displayed the glory of the Father. I mean, we're in John 17. As we've studied the Gospel of John, we have seen the glory of Jesus to be concentrated in the resolution of the justice and mercy of the Father on display as Jesus goes to the cross. God is perfectly just and must punish sin. God is unbelievably merciful and loving and does not want to hurt and punish anyone. And he reconciled that in the mind of God through the atoning substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf that all who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life because God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. 
as the Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, Jesus reveals the glory of the Father. And through our example, people's concepts of justice and right and wrong are transformed. People begin to agree with God about what is right, and the revelation of the glory of God redefines our understanding of morality, of holiness. Because of this teaching, we receive a new understanding of mercy and forgiveness and salvation. When Jesus speaks of giving his disciples the glory the Father gave him, I gave them the glory that you have given me, I've given to them. When Jesus speaks of that, he means the revelation of the Father's justice and mercy because and through Jesus' death on the cross. And that death now holds us tightly if we believe in Jesus. And as a result, this desired unity is among us. And in short, people believe and understand the gospel. This is the desperate need of the world that Christians would be unified so that the world would believe in Jesus' mission. And not only that, but it becomes so much more personal. Not just that there's a need, but look at this unbelievable truth at the end of verse 23 so that the world may know that not only that you sent me, then he builds on it, and you love them the same way you love me. Who are the pronouns? Who's the you? That's God the Father. Who's the me? That's Jesus speaking in the first person. And who's the them? Exactly. And Jesus declares to us in this prayer that God loves us the same way He loves His Son. And again, my mind is blown. (laughs) Is this your mission? Is this what you're about? This is the call. I can't come up with something better. I think we see this, friends, in our social media-driven world. I think we see this in our, in, in, in our culture today. What your mission is, is what you're trying to convert people to. Are you trying to convert people to politics? Are you trying to convert people to a particular economic platform? Are you sharing pleasure? Do you want peace at all costs? Is it more about finances for you? Health is a big thing right now. Are you trying to convert people to thinking about health the way that you think about it? Family? Education? What is going to save the world and what is your life mission? What is so important to us that we've reduced the mission of the king down to our tiny sandcastles in the playpens of our lives? Shame on all of us. This is the call. Jesus came into the world so that people would know that he came to save them and that they would know the love of God which is so profound. Two desperate needs. We need to be one so that the world would believe in Jesus' mission. And we need to be one so that the world would know that God sent Jesus in love, not to judge. Three helpful truths. I'm doing all right. We still have 13 minutes. This is amazing. 
I thought we'd be behind this morning. Well, as they say in our contemporary culture, I have all the questions. All the questions. How does this work? What's the focus of this unity? What's the source of the unity? How do I take the prayer of Jesus for himself, his apostles, and for us? How do I let that challenge and change the way I see my own priorities and concerns? Unity is often confused with uniformity. Uniformitarianism. Uniformity is the desire to have everybody look the same and be the same. Uniformitarianism is kind of like totalitarianism, is me making sure we all look the same. (laughs) Unity is a little different, especially the way Jesus is describing it. Let me offer you three observations, three helpful truths about unity. Not uniformity. Not uniformitarianism. Do you understand that the other banners, the other tribes, demand uniformity and uniformitarianism? They're very intolerant of differences. You want to be on the political party? You buy the political platform. You want to be in the club? You sign the statement of agreement. Unity is a little different. It's kind of like the difference between obedience and submission. I can make you obey, but submission is a choice of the will, yes? That's why Pastor Brian said last week about that little boy who says, I'm standing up on the inside. You may have made him sit down, but the heart's a whole different thing. Three helpful truths. I hope they're helpful. Number one, let's make sure of this. We should be united with Jesus and the Father. That's the goal, not each other. Which seems kind of funny. He wants us to be unified. You think we would seek unity. But it's one of those paradoxes that if I seek unity and that's the only way I seek it, it's harder to get. But if we all get closer to Jesus, it'll happen naturally. We picture this in our premarital mentoring. You have a a young man and a young pay attention, Nick. A young man and a young woman. (laughs) And they're living their lives down here and they're different. They're different man and woman. They're different life experiences, all different. And here's the truth of God perfectly revealed through Jesus Christ in the Word. And they can work hard at getting to know each other. But if they both just seek Jesus, are they going to be more unified? Yes. It's the same thing. We don't get unified by trying to unify with each other. Now, there's a place for that. There's sometimes unity's tough, and i got to sit down, and, and it feels a little bit like that. But what's in it? What's at the heart, the core? Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, I in them, and you in me. I get it. It seems pretty straightforward. We get unified by collectively getting closer to Jesus. Amen? That is how we get unified. Secondly, the truth of the apostles' message is what will unify us. Above all else. He says, I do not ask for those only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. 
And then as we said before, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them. Jesus has revealed things for us to unify around. Primarily that empty cross. And from there it spills out from the life of Jesus and the written word of God. This is what unites us. And lastly, the closeness and unity that Jesus and the Father have, that should be ours too. What a seemingly impossible picture. Again, the closeness and unity that Jesus and the Father have should be ours too. I wrote this sentence in my notes. What a seemingly impossible picture. But so is redemption. God reconciling us to himself and extending to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Just as the unity that Jesus prayed for his disciples to share had an evangelistic purpose, the unity that Jesus prays for in verse 22 and the beginning of verse 23, obviously evangelistic as well. Friends, hear this. If the disciples are in Jesus... And look again, the Father is in Jesus. Then our union with Christ produces union with one another. You see that? Just saying it another way. And this unity is so that the world can know two things. That God really did send Jesus. And that God loves his people just as he loved Jesus. Can we come back to verse 23 just for a moment? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is an unexpected grace from the hand of the Father. That God would love us in the same way that he loved Jesus. Jesus deserves God's perfect love. We do not. Through our union with Christ, by faith, through the Holy Spirit, the Father loves you. The same way he loves Jesus. And I believe that those who experience that love, those who come to know the four-dimensional love, the height and width and breadth and depth, Paul got carried away. I only know of three dimensions, and he, he gave us four. <laughs> that we would know the love of God. I believe it's transforming. And that those who experience that kind of transformation will be noticed by the world. The world, as a result, will be convinced that God sent Jesus because of the transforming love of God that they observe, creating unity among the people of God. I'm going to write the praise team back to the platform. I have just just a little bit left here. After the service, if you have a spiritual need, uh, I always forget to mention this. Uh, We have a little counselor's room, a prayer room over here. There'll be someone waiting at the end of the service. If you'd like to have more conversations about this, just have someone pray with you. It's our privilege. I'm always available afterwards, too. And 
You know, there's nothing we like more than having an opportunity to talk to you guys. This is great, but it's so enjoyable to, to have personal and private conversations with all of you. So how do we put a bow on this? How do I press this into your life a little bit, give you a few things to think about? Well, what are you seeking in life? I mean, really, what do you want? Do you seek the glory of the Father through unity with Jesus? Do you seek that? Is that in your grid? Are you willing to work to demonstrate the glory of the Father through spiritual unity here at Heather Hills? Is that in your grid? Are you, com- are you convicted about that? Jesus said at another place, remember, they will know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. It's not just a random one-off here. Heather Hills, if I can contemporize just for a moment, it would be wrong for us to let masks, COVID, politics, race, financial status, or any other tribalism disrupt the unity of the Spirit here at Heather Hills. It would be wrong. In fact, it would be pride, self-righteousness, and arrogance for us to place our agendas above the agenda of the King who loved us and gave himself for us. I can't say it more plainly than that. I don't sense a huge problem, but this is the text in front of us. Jesus' main priority as he goes towards his death is that the Father would accomplish his eternal plan. Again, reversing the effects of the fall, this curse, and calling together the people who belong to him forever. What is the major impact of this on us? I hope this morning that we would sharpen our understanding of Jesus' mission and purpose. Be reminded, Jesus had a mission. He came for a reason. If this priority is his major concern, if this is his chief goal on the earth, it should be ours too. His prayer for his apostles and for us should be a challenge in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own lives. Is our unity grounded in the apostles' message? Are we one in the Father and the Son? Are we gripped by, united in, and obedient to his gospel purpose around the world so that the world that's watching would be impacted by our witness. This became such an important thing. I'm going to close by simply reading a short passage. You've already heard it this morning um, in our call to worship. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus not long after Jesus went back to heaven. I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble, gentle, patient. Bear with one another. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That was the central theme. 
What is that unity in? Why does Paul, now listen to this. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. What's our unity sourced in? Here we go. Not a new message. And yes, we're different. God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ can be built up. Yeah, we have different gifts and we all do different stuff. Cool. Why? Until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. Then we won't be infants any longer, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Those are the different competing agendas. Those are the people who would use us for purposes less than the purpose of God, the politics, the money, the world, the pleasure. So we would not be tossed around. We would know our place. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head. That's Christ. And from Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting part, grows and builds itself up together in love as everybody does its part, as every part does its work. Sounds like Paul read Jesus, huh? Pretty straightforward. God help us. Father, may your word go deep in our hearts and help us grow. Give us wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen.